This is 100 Years of Cocks. My name is Frances Thompson and I read original letters written by 10 siblings who were born from 1868 to 1884, one of whom was my great-grandfather. The older family were Enid, Edmund, Arthur, Neville and Wilfred, and the five members of the younger family were Bernard, Aldwin, Cuthbert, Avis and Vera. Seven of the siblings lived in England, and three brothers lived abroad. They were the colonial contributors. This podcast is a short one. The last two letters from budget number 22 and the first letter from budget number 24. Wilfred's letter was written in August 1909. He's in Montana in the USA where he's working as a miner. And Enid and Cyril have been making lantern slides from their Swiss holiday photographs. Enid's letter was written in October 1909. Then there is a tragedy. The whole of budget number 23 is lost in the post, presumably between Africa or America. So the budget letters jump straight from October 1909 to Christmas. Bernard starts budget number 24 on Christmas morning at the family home in Longton Avenue in Sydenham. He's already been to church. Lizzie the cook is busy in the kitchen and he can smell the turkey cooking as he writes. Bernard is recording his predictions in the budget so he can later find out if they came true or not. Then I'm going to start reading from the 1909 Christmas budget, a collection of stories, poems, anecdotes and articles written by the siblings, including their father, Reverend Dr. John Charles Cox. Father describes events from his childhood in the 1840s and 1850s. The normal budget went round several times a year, but the Christmas budget was supposed to be a bit special. Bernard was the editor. He would remind his siblings during the year to think of a good idea for the Christmas edition. Bernard collected and edited the contributions, and he paid to have the handwritten manuscript typed and bound into a book. The 1907 Christmas budget has survived and is safely preserved in the Bodleian Library. I read this Christmas budget in season one of the podcast, episodes 22 and 24. The 1908 Christmas budget has been lost, but some poems from it were copied by the teenage David, son of Arthur, into a later Christmas creation, an anthology of Cox frivolities compiled by David in 1931. The second edition of David's handwritten anthology has survived in the huge Machel Cox archive in the Bodleian Library. There are a few more special Christmas editions of the budget still to come, until World War I started and everything changed. Wilfred's letter, put in by Avis. Canton, Broadwater Company, Montana, USA, August 1909. Dear budget readers, I had another excellent budget to read the other day. I've sent it on to Aldwin, not to Neville as Vera directed, because I think he has perhaps left South Africa by now. I expect to be back in British Columbia sometime during the next winter, so if Neville does come, I shall probably see him again. It is more than nine years since he left British Columbia. This is not very good paper for letter writing. It is rather too thin. I have been haying for the last week, and I'm now back at Pilot Knob. 
I am at present alone, as John is away trying to sell a horse. I have vainly been hunting for a lead the last two days, digging trenches at right angles to its probable course. If we do find it, it's bound to be a very rich one, as we found splendid float, i.e. loose pieces of ore. If we don't find it in a week, I think we shall resume work upon the old shaft, where we can make pretty good wages at any rate. Digging trenches in the open is very hard work, as the sun is hot and the ground is very hard. I've read one or two good books lately, Alexander Hamilton, an essay on the American Union by F.S. Oliver, a very good essay upon an unfamiliar period. The early American politicians, except Washington and Hamilton, must have been a very poor lot. The Wild Geese by Stanley Wayman. I expect you've all read this. It is quite up to Wayman's best standard. I sincerely hope it is not his last book. Songs of a Sourdough by R. W. Service. Poems of the Canadian West in the style of Kipling. Well worth reading. Most of these books were birthday presents and were very much appreciated. The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square by Mrs. De La Pasture. Another birthday present. A good and rather uncommon novel. Somewhat sad. And Poems by Francis Thompson. Very good. Indeed, his vocabulary is most peculiar but does not seem archaic. Have any of you read any of his prose? If any of you have witnessed the test matches, I hope to hear your impressions. I am in hopes of England yet winning the rubber. This is an extraordinary country for lightning. Horses are frequently killed by it. All the valley below us is irrigated and bears fine crops, chiefly alfalfa. It was a sage bush desert till they tried alfalfa. There are some very rich gold mines in the hills. Wednesday 11th of August. I got up early and got to work at 6.15 and worked until 10.15. It was exceedingly hot, even at that early hour. I shall do another four hours this afternoon. I dug another trench to no purpose. Has the third volume of Fletcher's History of England been published? If it has, is it as good as the other volumes? Your loving brother... W. M. Cox. Notes on Wilfred's letter. Wilfred is a bit of a mystery. There is so much that is unknown about him. He writes his letter from Montana, where he is working for the Canton Broadwater Company as a miner. He has received an excellent budget and has then posted it to Aldwyn in Nyasaland. Vera told him to post it to Neville in South Africa, but Wilfred knows that Neville is leaving Africa and is probably on his way back to England. Thanks to Wilfred, this budget was not lost. It appears he's working in the mines in the summer and then plans to go back to British Columbia for the winter, when Neville is likely to be arriving, to buy land and start a new life as a farmer. Wilfred says that it is nine years since Neville was last in Canada. They were both clearly working together in Canada around 1899 or the year 1900. This letter is particularly difficult to read. It's very thin paper and the ink has bled through the paper. Wilfred's handwriting is curly and flowing, so it's hard to make out which sentences were originally on which side of the paper. I think I've got most of it, but hey, none of these letters were typed.
Gloria from Ontario, who also finds my mad relatives fascinating, located a naturalisation document of Wilfred's. He was clearly applying to become an American citizen. On the 28th of August 1909, Wilfred was 36 years old. He was 5 feet 11 inches with brown hair and blue eyes. He is in Broadwater County, which is towards the south of Montana, and he's employed as a miner. He arrived in Montana from Innisfail, Canada, and crossed the border into America at Sweetgrass on the 2nd of July 1909 before travelling to Pilot Knob in the west of Montana, where it looks like Wilfred was working as a miner. But he could also have been in the south of the state, in Broadwater County. I'm not really sure. The naturalisation document states, It is my intention to renounce forever all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state or sovereignty, and particularly to Edward Seventh, King of Great Britain and Ireland, of which I am now a subject. I am not an anarchist, I am not a polygamist, and it is my intention, in good faith, to become a citizen of the United States of America, and to permanently reside therein, so help me God. It was signed with Wilfred's neat handwriting on the 28th of August, 1909. Wilfred had fabulous handwriting when he had good paper to use. Interesting that he was applying to become an American citizen, and promising to reside permanently in America, when he tells his siblings he's planning to return to Canada for the winter. Wilfred loves cricket, though he currently gets to play very little. Please send me the cricket news, he asks. He's also received a lot of books as birthday presents. One is about Alexander Hamilton, one of America's founding fathers, on which today's hit show Hamilton is based. Wilfred says the early American politicians, except Washington and Hamilton, must have been a poor lot. Stanley Wayman, Mrs. de la Pasture, and the poems written by Francis Thompson, the male poet, who has already died of TB by this point. Wilfred says there are gold mines in the hills, so I think this means he wasn't mining for gold, but instead for iron ore. In the valley below, the farmers grow alfalfa, and the lightning storms are extraordinary, says Wilfred. Horses are frequently killed by lightning. <laughs> Enid's letter, 27 Sefton Park Road, Liverpool, October the 26th, 1909. Dear family, the beginning of a budget letter is always the worst part. One does not know how to make a start. I'm not sure that Owen's stereotyped commencement would be altogether bad. Thanks awfully for your letters. It certainly is a great pleasure reading all the different contributions and this time we have splendid letters from both Neville and Wilfred. I hope we shall soon have one from Aldwyn. Since we got home on August the 31st, we have had many relations staying with us. Cuthbert, Aunt Annie, Vera Avis, Neville Bernard and Charlie Isles and his wife. So we have not been much alone as we've had various acquaintances here too. Cyril is expecting a new junior inspector to join his staff next month. He is coming to be trained. We are going to put him up for a bit, so I do hope he will be pleasant. We know nothing about him except that his name is Nash, 
and that he has been tutor to Lord Selborne's son in South Africa. He writes a vile hand. I hope his appointment is not a job. Cyril is quite interested in his new work. He is to hold his first conference as divisional inspector on Saturday, and then he entertains all the inspectors to lunch at his club. There is a woman inspector among the number, but as the club will not admit ladies, she has to come and lunch with me instead. I think I ought to go to the conference to chaperone her. Our chief inspector, Edmund Holmes, is coming to stay with us for it. He is such a delightful man and so well read. He is the author of The Triumph of Love that Avis speaks of. He is a true poet. We have been making lantern slides in our spare time from the photographs that we took in Switzerland. We've got some rather nice ones, but I must leave that for Bernard and Neville to say, as we gave them a little exhibition when they were over here. I have been several times to the picture exhibition here, which is an unusually good one. I've found many that I like exceedingly, but curiously enough, there are one or two that I marked in my catalogue at my first visit that I don't really care for on closer study. I've got a season ticket, so I can go in when I like. We went to a big concert at the Philharmonic on Friday, at which Tetrazzini sang. She was received with rapturous applause. Her voice is certainly marvellous. We saw Barry's play, What Every Woman Knows. I think I liked it better than anything I've seen for a very long time. The dialogue is so full of good things that one can hardly appreciate them all the first time of hearing. But will those of you who have seen the play please tell me what it is that every woman knows? I really am not quite sure and should like to have your ideas. Owen had atropine put in his eyes and the effect lasted for a fortnight, but the oculist said that though one eye was slightly short-sighted, he need not wear glasses at any rate at present, which is a great relief. He has been put into the XX this term, which at rugby is the form between the upper fifth and the sixth. He's been lucky enough to get through the first round of the chess tournament. He had to give a bishop and a pawn, and had a very hard fight. He has got the heaviest handicap, but one in the school. I hope he is not spending too much time on it. Hazel is very fond of her stilts, and she can walk quite well on them, but she can hardly use them out of doors now, as the ground is in a perpetual state of swamp, owing to the persistent rain. Liverpool is unpleasantly to the front just now, on account of the sectarian riots that are going on. There is a very bitter feeling between the Orangemen and the Catholics, and the whole city is in a most excited state. George Wise, a fanatical Protestant of the Kensit type, has just gone to prison for four months, having refused to be bound over to keep the peace. He was escorted to Walton Jail by 60,000 people. On Sunday, we had 300 police in from Manchester and a good many mounted men. Everyone thinks another outburst is coming, very likely on November the 5th. In the summer, there were 50 schools closed on account of the riots. Fortunately, the disturbed area is not at all at our end of the town. Mrs Brooke from Slingsby has been to lunch here for the last two days, as she is staying close at hand. 
She says how very much she admires the rectory cottage at Terrington. She thinks it is so pretty in every way. I hope we shall have a better account of Mary before the budget comes round again. I don't believe now that either Cook or Peary got to the pole. They are a sweet pair anyhow. Wilfred, I quite agree with you about Walt Whitman. He never seems to me a poet in the true sense of the word. Cuthbert, what does D.L. mean? Is it the devil? Avis, how did Billy kill a tiger? And have you been out riding yet? Books. The Eyewitness by Hilaire Billock. This book would never have been written, I feel sure, if it were not for Puck of Pooh's Hill. To quote from the preface, it is a series of descriptions and sketches in which it is attempted to reproduce certain incidents and periods in history, as from the testimony of a person present at each. In this way, we get various episodes. Hastings, Runnymede, Luz, Cressy, Napoleon in the Guadarrama, but perhaps the best one is Roland and Rules Valet. The Marriage of Hilary Camden, Stanley Portal Hyatt, A Tale of Rhodesia Before the Boer War. The African part is splendid. The hero is a transport rider, but the English part is tedious. I should like to know what Neville thinks of it. The hits at archaeologists would make father wild. What does it matter if a man doesn't know a piscine from a low side window? Your loving sister, Enid Isles. Notes on Enid's letter. How to start a letter, muses Enid. When her son Owen writes home from school, he starts by saying, thanks awfully for your letters. Not a bad way to start, thinks Enid. They've had loads of visitors to stay. 27 Sefton Park Road in Liverpool is still there. It's a large house. There were several servants who lived there in 1909, as well as the family. And clearly there were a few spare bedrooms as well. From the number of wheelie bins outside the house today, it looks like it's been divided up into flats. Cyril has been promoted. He's now a divisional schools inspector and is responsible for other more junior inspectors and he's going to take them all for lunch at his club. But, botheration, there's now a woman inspector and the club will of course not admit ladies. Astonishingly, all the men go to Cyril's club for lunch. The name of the club is not mentioned, so I've got no idea. Whilst Enid takes the female school inspector out to lunch at a restaurant. Enid is thoroughly Edwardian, if not actually Victorian, in her belief that things should be done properly. She thinks this poor woman needs a chaperone amongst so many men and shouldn't be at the school's conference on her own. Wow. Cyril is a keen photographer and spends a lot of money buying glass plates and all the necessary equipment for what was then a very expensive hobby. I'm still amazed that photographers could get all their kit, including glass negative plates, all the way to Switzerland and back without the glass being broken. There are some good photos and Enid says they're making lantern slides. This was an early form of slide projector, so Cyril's photos could be projected onto the wall and visitors can see their photos of the glacier at Chamonix. Possibly Cyril's photos still survive. 
in someone's attic. But if so, I don't know about them. So we just have to imagine their slideshow. For a walking holiday in Switzerland, Enid would have been wearing a short hockey skirt given to her by Vera, which went almost to her ankles, but not quite, as well as stout boots and a shirt or blouse with long sleeves and a high neckline plus a hat. The men would have worn a shirt, tie, jacket and waistcoat and possibly some sort of flat cap. J.M. Barry wrote the play What Every Woman Knows and it was first on the stage in 1908. He's also written some of the Peter Pan stories by 1909, but Peter Pan does not yet overshadow everything else he wrote, which will happen soon. Enid is not quite sure. What is it that every woman knows? Please tell me, she says. Enid didn't quite keep up with all the dialogue when she went to see the play. Although suffragettes were already shouting about women's rights in 1909, this play ignores all that completely. What every woman knows means that behind every successful man is a woman who organises, promotes and enables that man, i.e. he wouldn't be successful without the invisible partner behind the scenes enabling his success. Owen is doing well at rugby school and is good at chess. Hazel is enjoying her stilts and can walk on them successfully and Liverpool is full of rioting between the Catholics and the Protestants. George Wise was Protestant and Enid says 60,000 people escorted him when he was sent to jail. But fortunately, the trouble is not at our end of town, says Enid. Slingsby is a little village near Terrington and Bartonley Street near York. Bartonley Street is one of the places where the siblings grew up, where Dr Cox was the rector. Enid and Cyril were married in the beautiful little village church in 1892. Dorothy, who married Arthur, grew up in Terrington, a nearby village, where her father was the Anglican rector. So Mrs Brooke from Slingsby must have been an old family friend who's been to visit Enid in Liverpool with all the news from Yorkshire. Cuthbert said in a previous letter that a rector on the Isle of Wight in the summer preached a sermon about D.L. Several siblings have said, what on earth are you talking about, Cuthbert? And actually, I'm not sure that Cuthbert ever explained himself in the pages of the budget. And Avis has said in a letter, Billy has quite killed a tiger. What? says Enid. And I'm not sure Avis explains herself either. Enid has read loads of books, but I've only included a couple. The book by Hilaire Belloc has similarities to Puck of Pooh's Hill, says Enid. And we get another clue about father's wild temper. He does sound a character. Stanley Portal Hyatt was an English explorer, writer and hunter and is clearly not complimentary about archaeologists. I can't find out anything about this book he wrote, but Enid reckons it would have angered Dr Cox, who was a writer and historian and an antiquarian. What does it matter if a man doesn't know a piscine from a low side window? Tragedy strikes. The whole of budget number 23 was lost in the post, including a particularly good letter of Neville's, in which Neville describes he and Bernard visiting the 1909 Blackpool Air Show, which is considered to be the very first air show ever to take place in England. 
So we are back round to Bernard again, who starts to write his letter for Budget 24. Budget number 23 has not yet been lost in the post. It would have been posted around England in the package as Budget 24 was being written by the siblings so everyone could read everyone else's old letter. When Budget 24 was finished and back at Longton Avenue again, Budget 23 was then posted abroad to Africa and it never returned. Bother. Bernard's letter. Christmas Day, 1909, Sydenham. Dear family, I think this is the first budget letter I've ever written on Christmas Day. Neville, Cuthbert, Avis and Vera have just gone off to church. It was very cold at the eight o'clock celebration this morning and I'm not going now so I will take the opportunity of starting my letter. The budget is very interesting this time. I've just read my old letter with the greatest interest. Cuthbert, you have very effectively trodden on the enemy's political corns. You have certainly found a tender spot in their anatomy. I was so surprised at Edmund's and Neville's references to your letter that I had to turn back to see what all the indignation was about. Their view, though not expressed in so many words, is probably this. Why should the stink of this man, your, pervade the budget? I quote from a paper that supports the gentlemanly party. Personally, I see no reason why politics should be barred in the budget. It is a good way of letting off steam without having a quarrel and disturbing the peace of the household. Politics is one of the greatest interests in life to some people. And as Cuthbert takes an active part in a small way, why should he not be allowed to express his opinions? If anybody disagrees, they can either ignore them or dispute them. Neville says, I believe I gave my point of view of the Transvaal question, but that was not home politics, and I thought it might interest budget readers to know what a colonial thought on colonial questions at first hand. England political questions ought to be barred. Surely the budget members abroad are interested to know what we at home think of our petty little English affairs. As to expressing one's opinions violently, what do you think about this? Neville continues, Oh, I can tell you we out here, South Africa, simply curse the Liberal government. I quote from memory, but the reference can be verified with a little trouble if necessary, says Bernard. There is another side of the question as to whether politics of the home variety should be allowed to be discussed in the budget. I think one of the advantages of the budget is that we, and others perhaps, will be able to read it again in later years. And even now, it is extremely interesting to read the old letters of a few years ago and to note the varied opinions expressed by different members of the family on questions that were then rife. Opinions given by people at the time are a great deal more interesting than those expressed when the matter in question is settled and done with. Arthur, who I fancy, regards himself as detached from party politics, not very long ago invited the members of the budget to express their opinions on the granting of self-government to the Transvaal and not to prophesy after the event. This will be very interesting to read in years to come. English politics are now in a very interesting stage. I'm getting sick of this word interesting, but a substitute is difficult to find. 
And it would be, I think, unnatural to avoid discussing English politics. I will now prophesy. One, that the present government will come back after the general election with a majority of 140, including Irish, Labour and all anti-Lords men. Two, that there will be another general election within two years. This prophecy depends on my first one being correct or somewhere near it. Three, that in 20 years' time there will be no hereditary element at all in the House of Lords. There will be a second chamber, of course. Four, that home rule will be given to Ireland within 10 years, whichever party is in power. Five, Vera will again play for England this season. That is enough for the present, I think. Arthur, your account of Neville at the Plymouth footer matches was most amusing. I've been to several with him and he behaved like a perfect gentleman. I expect the footer we have seen was of a more sportsmanlike type than that you took him to. Edmund, you are incorrigible. But being Christmas Day, I will pass over your delinquencies with pained surprise. Your letter is a very good one. Leslie must be a very engaging infant from all accounts. Does he squeak when you press his tummy? Avis, your Morris dancing must be wildly amusing. Do please try and kick the butler over. I will give you five shillings if you do. Neville, what an excellent account you have given of the fascination of flying. I'd never analysed my sensations, nor tried to think why it was so engrossing, but I think you must be right. I like reading your impressions of the homes and families of the married budgeteers. They are fresh and original. Good little Enid, I am glad you sent on the budget so quickly, but it would come around too often if everybody sent it on in three days. Appetising smells of turkey are wafting into the room at intervals. Cuthbert is decorating the dinner table. Alas, I must eat with moderation. Last year I was ill after Christmas, this year before, so you can't say greedy. Aldwin, it is nice to see a budget letter from you again. What does your last sentence mean? May Leslie join our ranks hereafter. Books. Napoleon's Brothers is a lengthy and stout volume with a mass of interesting information contained in its pages. What a sentence! Quite worth reading. Takes a long time. With the exception of Lucian, who courageously withstood Napoleon for practically the whole time he was emperor, they were an incompetent lot. Jerome went to war with 318 silk pocket handkerchiefs. Travels with a donkey in the Cévennes. Robert Louis Stevenson. Just how this sort of travel ought to be described. Delightful. 26th of December. I will now finish this letter. Christmas passed off peacefully. Nobody got overexcited and cried, although Neville nearly did when we played progressive jigsaws in the dining room after supper. However, a little cold water and fresh air soon put him right. We followed the usual routine. After dinner, the boys went for a walk and the girls slept in the drawing room. About four o'clock, presents were hunted up and there was the usual excitement about some missing and also one or two extra ones that Vera discovered. They were presented at tea time. 
There were more books than anything else, I think. Vera got a hockey glove and a cardboard hockey stick, her new one having not yet arrived, as well as three bound volumes of The Hockey Field. After tea, we read the Christmas budget. The general conclusion seems to be that it was up to the previous standard. I liked Arthur's reminiscences and Cuthbert's country ramble immensely. I think that Neville, on the whole, ate the most, and he ended the day with every button doing its duty. This budget will be hanging about St Albans for some time, as Cuthbert has it next, and then Arthur, whom we hope to see in a few days' time. I bid you adieu. Your affectionate brother, Bernard. Notes on Bernard's letter. Bernard has been to the 8am Christmas morning service and it is very cold. He's come home and Neville, Cuthbert, Avis and Vera have gone to the later service, so Bernard starts his budget letter. He is talking about things written in the previous budget, number 23, the one that was lost. Alexander Ure, spelt U-R-E, the first Baron Strathclyde, was Scottish and he was a Liberal Member of Parliament. The siblings are arguing about whether politics should be included in the budget. There was obviously some stink about Mr Ure and something he was involved in that offended some of the siblings. Bernard thinks it will be very interesting re-reading the budget in a few years' time to see what everyone was talking about. Even now, Bernard finds it very interesting reading the old letters which were written in 1906. Bernard, I agree with you completely. We are finding all your letters quite fascinating as I read your 1909 letters 112 years after they were written. Bernard then makes five predictions. The present government will be re-elected. There will be another general election in two years, if prediction one is correct. The hereditary element in the House of Lords will disappear in the next 20 years. Ireland will get home rule in the next 10 years. And Vera will play for England again. I've just been reading about British politics. Herbert Asquith became Prime Minister in 1908 for the Liberal Party after the previous Liberal PM, Campbell Bannerman, resigned just a few weeks before he died. The Liberals did win the general election of January 1910, but they only just beat the Conservatives. Hereditary peers in the House of Lords, Bernard thought reform was coming. He would be amazed at how many hereditary peers still have a seat in the House of Lords today. Bernard says Edmund is still a delinquent. I don't know what he did. I expect he kept the budget too long. Avis has been describing Morris dancing at Portal. Do try and trip the butler up, says Bernard. I will give you five shillings. Neville, what an excellent account you've given of the fascination of flying, says Bernard. Sadly, we don't have that letter. The turkey smells wonderful. Cuthbert is decorating the dining table and Bernard says he must try not to eat too much this year. Aldwin wrote a budget letter, which was in the missing budget number 23. His last sentence said, may Leslie join our ranks hereafter. Bernard isn't sure what Aldwin meant, but I know. Leslie did indeed join the ranks of the budget and he was very proud to do so. 
My grandfather Leslie was one of the cousins who wrote letters, along with Aunt Vera for many years, once she was the last of the ten siblings still living. The other four members of the younger family, Bernard, Aldwin, Cuthbert and Avis, all died within just a few years, in the 1950s and 60s, and this hit Vera hard. And then the cousins carried on the budget for another 11 years after Vera had died. Bernard talks about books. Imagine going off to war with 318 silk handkerchiefs in your pocket. Bernard says all the characters described in the book, Napoleon's brothers, were an incompetent lot. And Robert Louis Stevenson has written a delightful travel book about going travelling with a donkey. Christmas Day went well. Nobody got overexcited and cried, although Neville got worked up when the siblings played progressive jigsaws. I think this means everyone did a jigsaw on their own and it was a race to see who could finish theirs first. But old-fashioned jigsaws were not like ours today with interlocking pieces. The pieces didn't hold together but just rested alongside each other so if someone knocked your table the whole lot could end up on the floor. Perhaps this was why Neville got upset. After Christmas dinner, the girls fell asleep in the drawing room whilst the boys went for a walk. Then everyone had to find the presents which they were giving to others. I don't know when the tradition started of putting gifts under the tree before Christmas, but it hadn't yet happened in 1909. I expect the Christmas tree was only brought into the house and decorated on Christmas Eve. That's if there was a Christmas tree. One is not mentioned, so who knows? Plus, presents were exchanged at the end of the day, at tea time. Many books were given as gifts, and Vera was also given a hockey glove. Vera is waiting for a new hockey stick to arrive, so somebody made her a cardboard one and gave that to her instead on Christmas Day. And then the Christmas budget was read aloud. Just as good as last year was the general consensus from various siblings. <laughs> In the next episode of the podcast, I will start reading from the 1909 Christmas budget. There is a lovely poem dedicated to mother called In Memoriam. I don't know if one of the siblings wrote it or not. Christmas 1909 was the first Christmas without mother and the siblings are still grieving. And then we have the first part of Dr. Cox's memoirs with many stories from the 1840s and 50s. This was originally going to be one podcast episode, but Dr. Cox's piece is so long and there are so many fascinating stories in it that it needed splitting into two, so Dr. Cox gets an episode to himself. He was born in 1843 and he describes the first 18 years of his life and all the interesting people he knew. It is possible that he again dictated his memories to poor Bernard, who perhaps was yet again given the task of scribbling it all down as Dr. Cox enthusiastically recalled stories from his youth. If you've enjoyed the letters I've read today and would like to write to me about anything that's in the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. My email is machelcoxletters at gmail.com. You can also contact me via Twitter at Cox Letters, where I share all sorts of photos and pictures. There will be some great Twitter pics this week, 
as Dr. Cox has provided me with loads of fabulous subjects and I found many photos and pictures relating to his younger days. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening. Thank you.